This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hello, welcome to Conversations with the President. I'm CBA President Vivian Salmon. I was called to the bar in 2010, two years after the bottom fell out of the global economy. The 2008 recession hit hard and left in its wake widespread societal change and technological disruption. A lot of companies have had to rethink the way they do business, and law firms are no exception. With this podcast series, I hope to look at how the legal profession is changing due to societal, economic, and technological forces, and what this means for lawyers in Canada by sparking an intergenerational dialogue. Jordan Furlong was called to the bar nearly a quarter of a century ago, but quickly learned he'd rather write or talk about the law than practice it. He's the former senior editor of CBA National Magazine, an author, consultant, and a leading analyst of the global legal market at his company, Law 21. Welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Thank you very much, Vivian. It's great to be here. So when the global economy collapsed in 2008, it wasn't just financial and housing markets that were affected. How did the legal marketplace change? Oh my gosh, the legal marketplace changed, I think, in ways that for many of us who were inside the market at that time, don't maybe fully appreciate today, right? Because one of the things about being in a, in a large-scale change such as we are experiencing is that you're kind of there day-to-day and sometimes you kind of overlook just how much has shifted and, and how much the landscape and the environment is different from, from where it was. So... From our perspective, we might say, oh, well, there's been some change and there's been some adjustments and so forth. But if you were to take a lawyer from, whatever, 2005, right, and you know, pop them in the time machine, bring them forward and say, this is the profession in the market 15 years later or whatever, you might say, okay, it is significantly different than I was expecting. It's, it's no longer the same kind of linear trajectory that, that we expected beforehand. It has been up and down and all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I, th- and I mm-hmm. think I think that is not just the recent history of the profession in the legal market. I think that's what we can come to expect for uh, at least several years yet to come. Hmm. So the recession and technological change were kind of a double whammy. What is it about technology that makes the current professional environment different than the one law grads faced even 10 years ago? Well, you know, there are so many different aspects of technology we could talk about. And and by giving you the answer I'm about to give you, I don't mean to discount or to neglect all the other aspects. And one of those, just as a very brief sidebar, the extent to which technology has allowed the sharing of information from clients and former clients so that there's a much more informed and, I think, empowered client base out there than there used to be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to ignore that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to focus on, I think, the most significant way in which technology has affected our lives as lawyers and the lives of clients as well, is technology's uh, ability to rapidly accelerate the performance of legal tasks. Mm. And and I think, again, that's something that if you were around in 2005 or 2000 or the 90s or what have you, if you were to say to that person, in the, sh- in the space of a decade, maybe, 
you'll uh, get to the point where machines, where software can carry out tasks that previously only lawyers could do mm -hmm. in legal research, in uh, due diligence, in contract drafting, in management and analysis, in the answering of straightforward legal compliance regulatory questions. All of these things, which were the backbone of associate uh, hours for many years in firms ac across the country, uh, and, and, and really, when you get right down to it, kind of the base of the law firm profit period. Pyramid, they are they are all being siphoned off into new providers or, or new ways of performing the task with technology and into new kinds of providers because it is not for the most part law firms that have adopted this technology it is new providers new players in the market so that's kind of, that's kind of a knock-on effect not only has technology allowed legal work to be done differently, much faster, uh, far less expensively, and quite frankly, better in many cases than it was before. Mm -hmm. But it has enabled the rise of a whole bunch of new platforms and providers that come in and say, okay, law firms don't want to use this technology. Law firms don't want to use this uh, approach to, to project management. We'll do it and we'll do it really well. So in that way, it feels like the legal profession has lost a little bit of control over I would even say how to train young lawyers. So how do young lawyers get trained? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? And that's you talk about a perfect storm, right? Because even if we didn't have enough challenge with the technology and the new providers and so forth, the whole approach to how lawyers are are, are trained and developed is, is under uh, a tremendous strain. And again, this is this is a rabbit hole down which we could go very deep. I don't want to I don't want to take us too far off of course. But with the siphoning off of what you would traditionally have called associate work from law firms, the inevitable result of this, I think, is that law firms will simply hire fewer associates, mm. right? Because if, they're, if, if the kind of work associates used to do is not being given to law firms, law firms are going to say, why are we hiring these vast grazing herds of associates around mm -hmm. the firm? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so I think the knock-on impact of that is that whereas law firms, and especially the larger ones, although obviously not exclusively, whereas law firms have traditionally been the bridge into practice for new lawyers. You come out of law school, and we won't rehash all the conversations about how law school doesn't prepare you for practice. Mm -hmm. We know it doesn't. That's not what they're set up to do. But when we come into practice, we sort of assume, as a profession, we assume that there are law firms, there are private sector providers of legal services that will be more than happy, not just to train us, not just to show us the ropes, but to pay us mm -hmm. for the process of doing that. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is starting to fall away as well. Mm -hmm. uh, law firms are coming to the point of saying, we no longer can afford this kind of a system. Now, again, a very brief sidebar here. It's not that they actually can't afford it. Law firms could afford to do any number of things very differently than they do. But within the structure, the culture, the profit margins that law firms are accustomed to, they look at this and they say, there is no real value proposition here for us to train new lawyers. And that, again, is significant. I think in a lot of ways, the most significant challenge we're facing as a profession. Hmm. So that is part of an article that I think you wrote this summer called mm. The Lawyer Development System. Yeah. And maybe you could expand a little bit more on what you mean by lawyer development system and why is it in trouble? Well, and thank you for mentioning that because I, the, the concept or the, or the model around which to talk about lawyer development for me is based on this idea that our traditional notion or our traditional assumption about, you know, learning to be a lawyer is that 
you apply to law school, you get accepted, you spend three years in law school, you graduate, you have an articling position, and then you are a lawyer. Ta-da! Mm. And, and in my experience, my personal experience and in that of countless lawyers that I have spoken to about this, that is not the reality at all. You are unleashed into the world, into the legal market, four years, maybe four and a bit, four and a half years after you, your first day of law school, and you are told you can now serve clients. You can, do now, you can now do all of these things. And we talk about imposter syndrome. And anybody out there who is a young lawyer or a new lawyer, uh, you've probably heard of this. And if you haven't, you almost certainly haven't because mm-hmm. we all do. This sense of, what am I doing here? Right? I don't know what I'm doing. I, yeah. I, I'm not qualified to do any of these things. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a great disservice that we do, we speaking now as a profession, mm-hmm. to ourselves and to our own people. So years ago, I wrote a, this is like 10 plus years ago, I wrote an article called The Seven-Year Law Degree. And I said it takes minimum seven years from the point of first day of law mm-hmm. school to uh, seven years down the road before you start to feel like a confident competent lawyer. And in subsequent conversations I've had with the lawyers, they said, you know what, that number is often closer to 10. Yes. Sometimes it's as high as 15. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, And so we shortchange ourselves. We credential way too early. We license way too early. And, and, and we kind of wander off and say, okay, you're fine now. And that's simply not the case. That's what I mean by lawyer development system. Our lawyer development system has been very slipshod, has been very ragtag, and it's, it does not befit our profession. And it is simply not acceptable for clients, corporate, consumer, individual, whatever the case might be. They have a right to something better. So how do we then rework the system? Because we've identified the issue and the problem but how do we go forward and how do we give in a way what I think young lawyers deserve and dare I say are entitled to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can say it. And thank you for using that word because I think I think that the current generation of lawyers and the ones to come need to take back the word entitlement, which has been flung at them by boomers and by a few of us Gen Xers. I'm mm-hmm. sorry about that. Mm-hmm. I always just laugh. Whenever a boomer calls someone else entitled, I get a kick out of that. <laughs> anyway. The irony. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, talk about that for a bit. But um, it, it's a challenge and it's an opportunity, I think, both for us to look at how we can rethink, reinvent uh, our lawyer development system, our lawyer licensing system. And I think it starts with this realization it takes a number of years before you're a pretty good, you're a, you're a, at least a decent lawyer, just like it takes a number of years before you're a decent doctor or a decent nurse or a decent engineer. So starting from that premise, then we look at, all right, what are the skills and aptitudes and talents and characteristics that we think a competent lawyer should display, right? And that's a conversation we can have all day and lots of candidates for that. Luckily for us, Federation of Law Societies of Canada, as mm-hmm. well as the, uh, uh, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority uh, in the UK, have both studied this, uh, this matter. They both come out with detailed reports saying, okay, here is a list of what we think are initial competence requirements for lawyers. And some of these are skills. Mm-hmm. You should be able to do A, B, and C, and D as a lawyer in mm-hmm. certain different mm-hmm. areas. Mm-hmm. But some of them are also personal characteristics, talents, and so forth, creativity, collaboration, mm-hmm. resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are different kinds of skills, financial literacy. Literacy and, and, and active listening skills, all these different things. Empathy would be wonderful mm-hmm, to have. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's the second step is you say, all right, this is what we need. This is what we have to – if you have these things, now we feel comfortable. Now we feel like we can actually unleash you on the world. 
Okay. Third question then becomes, okay, where do lawyers get these skills and this, these, uh, this experience, these skills, this knowledge, and so forth? I think it's fair to say that we might as well not bother asking most law schools to do this. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not because I'm trying to slander them. They, they, what they do is what they were set up to do, and they do that very well. Mm-hmm. I just think that what they were set up to do isn't very helpful to us anymore. Yes. So if I... And luckily, I don't ran the ran you know, <laughs> ran the, the the legal regulation system in this country. I would essentially say, all right, these are the skills and the capabilities and the experience that we need. If anybody out there can create a program or a system or an operation funded however you like that will provide new lawyers with this information, with this uh, with the, these the, these receivables, we will license you. We will regulate you. We will funnel people towards you and saying, this is where you go to become a great lawyer. D- could that include a law school? Sure. It's, anything's possible, right? But more likely, I think this would probably, uh, be, again, be a new provider, a new platform to come into the market and say, all right, now we have a clearer sense of what's needed. Law schools are doing a wonderful job of preparing students for practice in the early 20th century. However, we are here to do something that's a lot more advanced and a lot more updated. That is how I would go about uh, this tackling this extremely challenging issue. So I want to take that one step further and maybe bring in corporate counsel. Mm. What do you see as a role corporate counsel can make in bringing about this change in terms of how we train young lawyers or not just young lawyers, but new lawyers better for the future? There's a whole bunch of different aspects there which are which are worth tackling. One of them is that for a corporate counsel, if you're and, – and I'm, for now, I'm going to say corporate counsel as including public sector, if I may, just for mm-hmm. the purposes mm-hmm. of this discussion. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when you do that, you kind of realize at a certain point – we are no longer we're no longer talking about exceptions to the rule, right? Again, we have a long-standing assumption that the normal lawyer, the default lawyer, the standard lawyer is in private practice, either in a big firm, small firm, solo, doesn't matter, but you're in private practice. And if you're in-house, uh, whether you're public sector, whatever, well, you're an exception, right? You know, mm-hmm. you're not one of us. And, of course, as I'm sure you know, because you've mm-hmm. probably experienced this, and uh, this long-standing sense from the private bar, oh, yeah, well, you're, you're in-house, you know, so that that's nice for you, you mm-hmm. know, you, mm-hmm. you, you you couldn't cut it out here in the in the real world, so you just go off inside, right? And this is a very long-standing bias, and that's got to go as well. And part of it is this realization that the size of, if you will, the single client bar, the 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 public sector, corporate counsel, and many other uh, lawyers like this. This is a group that is starting to rival in size mm-hmm. the, the, the the private bar itself. Absolutely. And I think there's there a day could come. I don't think it will necessarily, but it could come where the, they really are two equal but separate uh, bars and deserve the same kind of respect and so forth. So it's a very important question mm-hmm. you're raising, mm-hmm. which is for this emerging powerhouse within the legal uh, profession, how do we treat the training development of lawyers here? Okay. First thing to to realize is that one significant difference, of course, between uh, in-house and external is that in-house, you're part of a company, part of a department, what have you, and this is nowhere close to their core function, right? You know, in the list of the 100 things the company's doing, training new lawyers is like number 500 on the mm-hmm, list, right? Mm-hmm, so this mm-hmm. is nowhere close mm-hmm. to something they should be doing. So we have to appreciate the fact that there's only so much that a corporation or a public sector mm-hmm. department can and should be expected to do. I do think, however, that the this part of the bar makes up for for that challenge with the fact that 
exposure to this side of practice, if you will, to the client side, to the demand side is just so valuable. This is something that many lawyers are, that you spend decades in Mm -hmm. some cases before you ever actually see the world from the client perspective. There are lawyers out there who have gone through their whole careers without once having to think about, I wonder what it's like to get served by me. I wonder what it's like to hire a lawyer and deal with, right? It's almost like people need to start as corporate lawyers in-house and then go to private practice. And that's a brilliant idea, quite frankly, right? Because that is exactly the kind of role reversal, the kind of default switch I think we need to talk about. What if? What if we said that you don't get to go out and practice in the private part? You don't you don't get to go out into the real world, you know, unleashed until you have actually worked as and with a buyer of legal services, a consumer of legal services. And again, it doesn't got to be a corporation or public sector department. It could be a community organization. It could be a nonprofit. Profit. It could be, uh, you know, whatever, like municipal government, something like that. So, uh, t- so I think again, rethinking: what do we mean by training and development? What are we actually trying to train? And if you were to argue, and I will happily make this argument, that maybe the single most important thing a lawyer needs is empathy for the client. Not, to, I don't mean like sympathy and, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. affection necessarily, mm-hmm. though it's always nice, but understanding the end goal, the mm-hmm. end user, the outcome that's mm-hmm, needed. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that is that is the foundational good lawyer skill. Where better to learn that than on the on the client side? Mm, absolutely. So last summer, some pundits were heralding the return of big law, the return of good pre-recession times for law firms. As we hear rumblings of another recession, has the profession learned anything from the last decade? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Not remotely. Uh, I'm sorry. That's that's a little flip. Um, the profession has learned uh, a few lessons. Uh, I think they will. They, they've probably forgotten those lessons by now, and will continue to uh, to do so because we're kind of doomed in a way to to repeat the the mistakes of, of the past. Uh, and again, whole other discussion. But um, I think that. The next recession is not just likely, it's inevitable. And the longer we go between recessions, the more severe and hard-hitting the next recession is going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, you can make an argument, and I suspect that there's an argument uh, very easily made, that it's not as if we're flying high right now. It's not as if this is a fabulous economy, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. and again, if you're a young lawyer, if you're young at all, you know what this is like. You know how hard it is to get steady work um, of any kind. I mean, so there are some people, if you're a shareholder, if you're a stock market player, yeah, you're laughing, right? But the other 95% of us, we're all struggling to get along. Okay. But a recession, which is, of course, a much more macro event, is going to come. It is going to hit law firms hard. And the best way, I, especially the larger firms, the best way I can describe that is not my idea, somebody else's. And if I was clever, I would remember who this was <laughs> during the podcast, and I, and I can't. But, they, but uh, this person pointed out, when the, when the recession hit, 2008, law firms threw any number of other people over the side. They fired secretaries, mm-hmm. and they fired associates, and they mm-hmm. fired clerks, mm-hmm. and they cut so many uh, people. And, and as a result, they became much more lean operations, and they did invest in some technology, and they became actually more profitable. And they were like, awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow, we should mm-hmm. do this all the time. The problem is that when the next recession comes and demand drops down, like like the ocean levels uh, after an earthquake and, and before a tsunami, mm-hmm. They're not going to have anything left to cut, mm, right? Mm. You know, we're, we're past the non-core parts of law firms. And, and I think at that point, law firms are going to be forced to confront the, the thing I think they're probably most afraid of realizing is that the business model itself, the fundamental mm-hmm. uh, s- s- uh, substructure 
of law firms, the way in which they make money isn't really going to work anymore. It worked wonderfully in the past. And there's all these wonderful law firms and big office towers. And, and, and again, not just big law, but law firms of all kinds that are so successful and so well-regarded. And that's because they were made for their time. They were perfect for their time. Well, their time is passing away rapidly. And we're going to have to find something new to not just even to replace them, but to improve upon them. That's the thing I, I want us to kind of hope. We should not be gearing all of our efforts to say, how do we make law schools better? How do we make law firms better? How do we make legal regulation better? I think what we need to do is step back and say, what if we reimagined the whole thing? Because we may have to anyway, right? We may be facing such foundational changes in politics, in society, in technology, that we can't go back to the old models anyway. And for some people, that's a terrifying prospect. For me, and I think for others, it is an invigorating prospect. And I think it's one that young lawyers can and should be at the forefront of thinking about, driving forward, and accomplishing. So that's such a meaningful conversation, and there's so much to unpack there. I'd like to thank you for taking the time, Jordan. You know, that's all we have for today. So looking forward to continuing the conversation. You got it. Thank you, Vivi. I've been talking with Jordan Furlong, a respected legal analyst and forecaster and friend of the Canadian Bar Association. You can find out more about him and his views on the legal profession at law21.ca. Omar Heredai is well known in the Canadian legal community. He has been a staunch supporter to many young lawyers, helping them develop their legal careers and was himself a past Young Lawyer Chair in the Ontario branch. Omar has held a variety of leadership positions in the Canadian Bar Association. He's an active networker and social media influencer, but he also keenly remembers what it felt like to be a young lawyer starting out and what it felt like launching Fleet Street Legal, a small legal firm with very little legal or business experience. Omar is currently executive director of the Durham Community Legal Clinic, and he also has a dream gig, teaching law and ethics at Ryerson University. Welcome to the podcast, Omar. Thank you for having me, Vivian. You were called to the bar in 2011. That's right. That's a year after I was called, and three years after the economic crash when a lot of law firms change the way they hire and promote legal talent. Your legal career has not had a storybook trajectory. (laughs) Join a firm, make partner, get the corner office. So how much of that do you attribute to the legal climate? Well, I think it was uh, already in my mind from the very outset of going into the legal profession that I wasn't going to have a traditional law career. Uh, And so although I did OCIs and I went through that process, Uh, There was never really any point where I was very excited about any of those types of opportunities. And and some of them did emerge, but it was just not what I thought was going to be the best approach towards developing my legal career. And so, um, you know, I tried to explore other opportunities and a lot of other opportunities emerged and uh, I was very happy to pursue them. And so tell me, how does your experience of the legal profession differ, say, from that of someone who is called to the bar even 10 years earlier than you? Well, I think part of it is, and we hear this over and over again, is that the talent that we find in law schools today is uh, is superb. It's beyond anything what previous generations 
uh, have seen. I, I'm not going to say that I was superb in terms of talent, but I think certainly my colleagues and the law students that I see going through the law schools today, they're different than previous generations. They have often multiple degrees, sometimes multiple careers. Uh, and that was certainly in that respect uh, an aspect that I think differed from perhaps uh, more senior lawyers in terms of chronology, because I did come to law school having had some other work experiences in very, very different disciplines, which allowed me to look at the legal profession in a very different way with a different lens and to really see perhaps there might be another way of doing things. So let's pick up on that, Omar. They say there's opportunity and scarcity because it puts you, I'd say, in survival mode. It makes you think differently, creatively, to find new solutions. So what new solutions are today's law grads finding that senior lawyers might not have had to deal with, or at least not so early in their career? Well, I think part of it is generational uh, in the sense that there are different values. So the previous generation or the uh, what I hear from older lawyers is that they'll say that younger lawyers today just don't want to work that hard. They don't want to put the time in. They don't want to pay their dues. And I think, you know, my response to that would be maybe they shouldn't have to because uh, we've also seen that the jobs that were there in previous generations where, you know, you're with one company for your entire life and you retire on a pension, it doesn't happen. We've seen many, many companies in society lay off thousands of people, individuals who are mid-career mid or late-career and have that entire uh, plan, if you will, pulled out from underneath them. And so I don't think it's that different in the legal profession. Young lawyers are realizing that, you know what, I might struggle to get to a big law firm or to that cushy job that I think is a cushy job, and that it's just not that stable, that the competition there is also worse, and there's no guarantee of hire back, and there's no guarantee of a partnership. And so all of that, from my perspective, is way more risky than what the alternatives are, which is finding your own path and ensuring that you have built your own safety net at every step along the way in your own career. So I find that really interesting because essentially what you're saying is that the social contract in a way is broken, that it's not that young lawyers are lazy. It's just that the world has shifted. Do you find a lot of young lawyers then coming into the profession understand the realities of the profession? And do you think senior lawyers have any idea of the challenges younger lawyers face? Well, let's start with that last point, Vivine. I think without question that more senior members of the profession have absolutely no idea what younger lawyers go through. Um, and I think that is very much a function of cost of living. So if you compare, you know, uh, adjusted for inflation, uh, the cost of living today, the cost of tuition has skyrocketed, especially in Ontario and some of the larger law schools. Uh, and so law students are graduating with way more tuition debt than ever before, probably ever in legal history uh, in, in terms of Canada. Um, and so that does really determine their choices. And so even when they are going to perhaps uh, a legal context or a work context, um, which perhaps compensates them quite well, they're only doing it for the compensation. They're not really into that job. Um, and so when, you know, more senior lawyers don't recognize or they recognize that these junior lawyers are not really into this job and they're not really invested in the long term, they may not be understanding that they're not there because they want to. They're there because often they have to be. And so mm. that's certainly part of the disconnect, I think, that uh, that more senior lawyers are not seeing. Um, in terms of the first part of your question, I wouldn't say that the social contract is broken. I think it's just a different contract. 
and, and, and we've recognized that that's a different contract our entire lives. It's just perhaps other individuals in the industry don't realize that the contract is different. And so, um, you know, it's part of it is generational, like I said, because the baby boomers in large measure have attracted a lot of the resources in terms of health healthcare spending, uh, pensions, et cetera, because those resources are geared to that significant portion of the population. So what happens to the generations that come after that? It simply means we have to be more resourceful and maybe look out for ourselves a little bit more. And that's not being selfish. That's simply being realistic. And I think maybe some senior lawyers have a hard time with that concept because I do think some of them feel it's being a little selfish that young lawyers seem to have multiple mentors and they don't just have one mentor. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how the generations see the mentorship and sponsorship role versus how that might have been seen years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think previously you would have individuals who would champion a specific individual within the firm. Um, and, and in that context, it very much was a contract because not only would they champion their success, but they were guaranteeing their future in the law firm. I don't think anybody can do that today. I don't think the, the dynamics within law firms allow for that. Um, and despite, you know, the turns that I've taken in my career, if there was a senior lawyer today who approached me and said, look, Omar, I am going to guarantee your stability in this firm or in this field for the rest of my time in this firm, uh, all you need to do is X, Y, Z, I would probably jump at that opportunity. I just don't think I've ever seen that type of stability anywhere else in the legal profession right now. Yes. And in reality, when I think about it, I don't think there's stability for senior lawyers either. I think that social, economic and technology has really shifted the way in a way the game has been played. Certainly. Yeah. So, Omar, is there anything you'd like to add in terms of this discussion that you think lawyers across the country really need to know and even young lawyers internationally that might be listening into our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to pick up on that last comment, Vivian, which is, you're right, even for more senior lawyers who are paying attention, they realize that there are market forces at play, there's technological changes at work. Uh, so the legal profession is changing. We know that the CBA has done wonderful work in terms of the futures report to recognize some of those changes and to help to guide lawyers. So I think they're aware of it. What the response largely has been is that to the extent that the existing business models are being profitable, let's continue to do them. And let's do the minimal amount of change and innovation necessary to keep up with everything. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. From a business plan perspective, that's probably the right thing to do, especially for large organizations where those types of shifts and changes are going to be very difficult and complicated. What that means, though, is that when we're looking at the legal market and those changes and the innovation and the technology, all of these things that I think are very, very exciting, those are all opportunities for people who want to be independent, or maybe they don't want to be independent, but they just realize that that's where they're going to have more stability is by creating their own autonomy and independence. There is a world of opportunities. Mm -hmm. I really do believe that. There is no shortage of opportunities, even though my legal career has been relatively short. I have uh, found so many opportunities, uh, but part of that isn't a matter of um, really being forced to do it because of scarcity. I think in some ways it's the opposite. It's the recognition that those other alternatives are themselves unstable and that I get more stability by being positive, by being confident in my abilities, by being confident in my colleagues as well. And so I think going back to your point about the mentoring, 
I don't think anything that I've accomplished today would have been possible if it wasn't for my colleagues in the profession, without question. Mm. The CBA, the OBA, which is our local branch of the CBA, have been enormously helpful Mm -hmm. at every step along the way, even before I got called to the bar. So it means that, you know, that support, those relationships, uh, the the type of mentoring that we have historically seen in the legal profession that has... uh, you know, been an intrinsic part of what we do, it's still there. I really do believe that in many ways. And I think I try to do that for other lawyers as well, the the lawyers who might be, quote unquote, younger than me or, or behind me in terms of your call. Um, and I try to do that wherever I can. But those relationships are more flexible. They're more dynamic. They're often not necessarily with lawyers that you're working with directly. Right. So it might be people in a different mm-hmm. firm that are in the same practice area. It might be individuals mm-hmm. who, um, you know, you share affinity group with. It might be people that you're on a working group with through the CBA. I mean, those are all examples that I think I firsthand have experienced where it's not a formal mentoring relationship. It's a matter of people are willing to help if you ask. Mm. And uh, you have to be willing to ask. You really do. People will be willing to make the time. Okay, they may not be able to make the time tomorrow or next week, but they will make the time. I believe that about our colleagues. Uh, The legal profession is amazing in that respect. People will make time now, not endless time. And you don't want to take advantage of that, but they will make time. They'll make an hour uh, uh, in their day at some point in the next month or two, depending on what their schedule is, to have a conversation about what it is that you're dealing with. And then what I would say to other lawyers is have that conversation, that same conversation with another lawyer and another lawyer. And surprise, surprise, you're going to get 10 different perspectives. And you're also building community, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the community, right? You're building community, you're having different perspectives, and and then you figure out what's right for you within that community, right? And I think that's the role of professional organizations is that in many ways, they do help foster that sense of community. Um, because, and this is what I say, right? I often say that organizations like the CBA typically will attract the best of the profession because, you know, realistically speaking, um, we, we are in a profession where time is very often synonymous with money. That's the way it works uh, for most of us. We bill our, bill our time. And so if we're spending our time, and many of us as volunteers, we do, we spend hours and mm-hmm. hours and hours for these volunteer organizations. We don't do it because we expect accolades and praise from our colleagues. We don't. We do it because we love it, because we believe in what we're doing. Uh, we believe we're trying to make a difference. And so those types of individuals who are giving from their time are probably going to be the ones who are most willing to give their time to their colleagues. And so I often say those are the people that you want to reach out to first. Uh, and I do that routinely, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, an issue comes up on a file that I'm not familiar with. It's something new. happens to me all the time. I don't have the luxury of walking down the hallway and knocking on uh, you know, a senior partner's uh, door and saying, hey, I have a complicated question. Can you answer this for me? So what I do instead, typically, is I will uh, walk down the hallway, if you will, of a website, of the CBA website for a certain practice group or uh, in the OBA branch of a certain practice area, a practice section, and I'm going to look and see who do I know there. And then I pick up the phone and I, and I call them and I say, hey, it's Omar. And right off the bat, because we all spend so much time in these organizations already, uh, people are always willing to give the time. They'll say, yeah, sure, I have 15 minutes for you. Tell me what you're dealing with. And and I think I have that support network in many ways through the profession, even though for the majority of my career, I've been a sole practitioner. And uh, so that's that's the beauty of the profession. I think there's a wonderful silver lining there. That's amazing. And I, I concur. There's so many amazing senior lawyers. And in fact, not just senior lawyers. Lawyers, I think, really want to help each other and really want to expand 
the way the law is practiced. At the end of the day, no matter where you practice across the country or what your practice area is, law is a helping profession. It is a profession and not a job. So, Omar, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. It's been great. And I hope young lawyers listening and senior lawyers across the country feel that they've learned something and that they can share something, too. Thank you, Vivian. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Omar Hereta is a great example of a young lawyer who entered the profession at a challenging time and use the resources available to create a successful legal career by following a non-traditional career path. We want to hear your stories about the changes you've seen in the legal profession or think the profession needs to make. Where do you see generational conflict and how do you suggest we overcome it? Let us know on Twitter at CBA underscores news, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcast. Mm-hmm.